Good evening and welcome. We're so grateful for your presence and thank you for being here tonight. We appreciate the opportunity to be together. It has been, as Brad said a minute ago, a beautiful day. We're grateful to enjoy this time of year, autumn, and we look forward to many, many good days as fall continues into winter and then, of course, anticipate spring as it comes around. Again, we thank those of you who are visiting. We appreciate so much you coming to be with us. If you are looking for a church home, as always, we invite you to consider the work here. We'd love to have you come and be a part of the church, church family here at Olive Branch. I think we have a special group of people. We're grateful for every member that makes up the body here. We are grateful for those who have been sick, who have been able to return. I did not mention this morning, but Bud Clark was with us. I know Carrie is back with us again, and we're glad that they've been able to come back and be with us, and we pray that God will continue to bless them. Tonight, I call attention to Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53, this is one of the premier chapters in all of Scripture. In many ways, Isaiah 53 is a microcosm of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Imagine if you can, 750 years before Jesus ever came to earth, Isaiah, in a very vivid manner, pictures for us the suffering servant. Isaiah talks about the fact that Jesus would vicariously suffer and die for our sins. Isaiah had a lot to say about the Messiah. Matter of fact, all the way back in chapter 7, you remember, he foretold of the virgin birth and the fact that Jesus would be born of a virgin. In chapter 9, he identified him as wonderful counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He talked about the government resting upon His shoulders and the kingdom of God that would be ushered in through the finished work of the Messiah. And so we come to Isaiah chapter 53. And we have in many respects a preview of the work of Jesus. The more I have studied this chapter, and the time that I have been privileged to spend looking and thinking about Isaiah chapter 53, I have to tell you that this chapter is rich with meaning. There are so many things that could be born out of a study of Isaiah 53. There's no way to really capture the essence of this chapter in one lesson. It's just not possible. But as you look at Isaiah 53, the first thing that stands out is Isaiah's announcement concerning the revelation of the Messiah. You remember he begins by asking the question, Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's hard for us to understand and to appreciate the wisdom of Almighty God. God recognized that in creating man, that man, given the ability to make choices in life, ultimately would sin and thereby stand in need of a Redeemer. And so God had a plan in place before He ever laid the foundation of the world. Before Adam and Eve made their entrance into this world, God had a plan in place. 
So when they succumbed to temptation in the Garden of Eden, according to Moses in Genesis chapter 3, God began immediately unveiling this redemptive plan. Bit by bit and piece by piece, over time, God began providing us with the portrait of the one to come. Now you remember the Apostle Peter in the long ago talked about holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter in his first letter talks about those prophets of old who testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So here are these ancient prophets and they're looking down in the distant time and they are pinpointing the coming of the Messiah. In order for us to have an appreciation for this redemptive plan, God had to reveal it, didn't He? And so God began revealing His redemptive plan. In Luke chapter 24, prior to the Lord's ascension to heaven, you remember He said to the apostles very specifically, These are the words which I spoke unto you while I was with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written about me in the law of Moses and in the Psalms and in the prophets. And so those ancient writers were pointing to the coming of the Messiah. And so, for example, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul there makes a case for inspiration and the revelation of God's wisdom concerning this redemptive plan. You remember he said in chapter 2, As it is written, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them which love Him. Now some people have the idea that Paul here is talking about heaven. I don't think that's what he's talking about at all. But rather I think he's talking about the majesty of this divine plan that was revealed by the Holy Spirit to holy men of God. And so in the following verse, he would say that God made known this plan through His Spirit. For the Spirit, he said, searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. And he asked the question, What man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. So, how then did God reveal this plan? Through the Holy Spirit. And again, bit by bit and piece by piece, this plan was revealed and articulated by the prophets of old. And so here is Isaiah writing, pointing some seven centuries down in time. And he's saying there is coming a day when the Messiah, the promised seed of Genesis chapter 3, is going to emerge. He's going to talk about the seed, that seed line that was announced in Genesis 3.15 and that ultimately ran through the great man Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So, note if you would. He said, He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as, as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness. And he said, When we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Who would have ever imagined that Jesus, the Messiah, the very Son of God, would be born number one of a virgin. And that rather than being born in the palace of a king, the Bible says he was born in the city of David in Bethlehem of Judea, in a manger. And here's Jesus 
coming into the world. The offering, the sacrifice that was made by his parents following his birth. You remember that sacrifice of humble beginnings, their poverty borne out, according to Luke chapter 2. So it would seem incredulous to man that God would devise such a plan and that He would bring the Christ into the world in this means. But, but that's exactly how He did it. Now, there's a second thing I want you to see in our study. And that is the rejection of the Messiah. Now, again, in verse 1, you remember he asked the question, Who has believed our report? In verse 3, he said, He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. There are some who have the idea that when Jesus came into this world, that because he was rejected by the Jews, God was caught off guard. That's not the case at all. But rather, Isaiah here is talking about the fact that the Son of God, the Messiah, who would make his way into the world, would be despised and rejected by men. Do you remember in John chapter 1, when John announces the Word who became flesh, the one who made the world, according to verse 3. And John said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But John said that Jesus came to His own, and His own received Him not. Jesus didn't necessarily fit the profile that the Jews anticipated. They were looking for an earthly monarchy. They were also looking for a Messiah who would come and redeem them from the yoke of Roman bondage. And so He didn't fit their profile. Matter of fact, the apostles didn't necessarily understand the nature of the kingdom of Almighty God because in Acts chapter 1, you remember, prior to Jesus ascending to heaven, they asked the question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So here's Jesus, the son of David. Following his death and resurrection, he would ascend to heaven where he was coronated. And now he sits at the right hand of Almighty God, doesn't he? But in John chapter 12, there's an interesting passage of Scripture relating to the unbelief of the Jews of his day. The Bible says that although He had done many signs among them, yet they did not believe in Him. Now imagine that. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 said, the Jews require a sign. The Lord Jesus performed countless miracles throughout His life, didn't He? Over the span of about three, three and a half years, we have a record of a number of signs or miracles that Jesus did in the presence of people. Well, what did those miracles or signs, what did they signify? That He was who He claimed to be. And yet, in John chapter 12, the text says that though He had done many signs among them, and you can go back and read beginning in John chapter 2, 
Here is Jesus turning water into wine. In John chapter 6, we have Jesus, as you well know, walking on water, healing the sick, raising the dead in chapter 11 with regard to Lazarus. They saw the signs, and yet they failed to believe. And so he said that it might come to pass, or that it might be fulfilled, which Isaiah the prophet had said, Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? God wasn't caught off guard, but rather Isaiah, 700 years prior to the coming of Jesus into the world, signified the fact that he would be despised and rejected by many, many people. Now, there's a third thing I want you to see. This really has to do with the bulk of our lesson now. It has to do with the redeeming work of the Messiah. One of the things that ought to really just leap off the page to us as we look at Isaiah 53 is the fact that the prophet underscores the vicarious suffering and death of Jesus on our behalf. In other words, Jesus took my place, didn't He? He stood in my place, I, being a person condemned because of sin, can look to Jesus as my Redeemer. And so, note if you would just some, some of the passages that allude to His vicarious suffering and death. For example, in verse 5, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. By stripes we are healed. In verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In verse 8, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. Verse 10, you make his soul an offering for sin. Verse 11, he shall bear their iniquities. And verse 12, he bore the sin of many. Isaiah here driving home the fact that Jesus vicariously suffered, bled, and died, or that from his perspective would suffer, bleed, and die for our sins. Now I want you to just imagine all of those Old Testament sacrifices that were made, going all the way back to the days of Adam and Eve. And they're offering animal sacrifices, and yet the Hebrew writer said that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. So here is Isaiah and the other prophets. And they are looking forward to that day and time when the Messiah would come, who would ultimately become the sin offering for the human family. Again, in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer talked about it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. But rather, there was a remembrance made every year of sin. And so they are looking forward by way of anticipation of the coming of the Christ. Now, note with me, if you would, a couple of passages here. In verse 6, he said, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, which says something about sin, doesn't it? The selfishness that is imposed upon people by a life of sin. 
And yet the whole tenor of the gospel system is to deny self, take up our cross, and follow Him, isn't it? What was it that got man in trouble in the Garden of Eden? Choosing to do things His way rather than God's ways. So Isaiah here is saying, We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord's laid on him the iniquity of us all. In verse 7 he said he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, you remember when he talked about how Jesus has left us an example that we should follow in his steps? Who did no sin, neither was guile and deceit found in his mouth. Who when he suffered, threatened not. When he was reviled, reviled not again. Here is Jesus, the Son of God, and you can go back and look at the trial as he stood before Herod and Pontius Pilate. The Lord Jesus Christ was willing to take the shame, the humiliation of a mockery of a trial and then his death on Calvary or on Golgotha. But note if you would, he said, he's led as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before his shearers, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? The eunuch that was on his way back home, as recorded by Luke in Acts chapter 8, was reading from this very text, was he not? And you remember when Philip came upon the eunuch, he asked him the question, do you understand what you're reading? And you remember what he said? How can I accept some man guide me? So here's Philip, an inspired man, and the Bible says that beginning at that same scripture, that is beginning in Isaiah 53, he began unfolding God's redemptive plan because the eunuch asked him, of whom does the prophet speak? Of himself or of some other man? And the Bible says that beginning at that same scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And so, here was a revelation of God's gospel plan of redemption to a eunuch. And I would also just add this very quickly. The gospel was intended for all people, Jews and Gentiles. And so when you go back and you look at Isaiah, for example, in chapter 2, you remember Isaiah talked about how all nations would flow into the church, that is, the kingdom of God. The word of the Lord would be, the word of the Lord would go forth from Jerusalem. And so on Pentecost Day, when the gospel was preached, many people obeyed the gospel, and then from that time forward, Countless numbers of people entered into the kingdom. In chapter 8, we have the inclusion of the Samaritans. Chapters 10 and 11, the Gentile people. Listen now to what he says. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Again, prophetically. Not just the death of Jesus spoken of by the prophet, but his, but his entombment. Jesus died between two thieves. 
And yet Joseph of Arimathea came and asked for the body of Jesus. And that body was placed in a new tomb. Isaiah tells that right here. Talks about it. In verse 10 he said, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin. Now let me just pause here for a minute. How could the death of Jesus be pleasing in the eyes of God? Think about the end result of his death on Calvary. For example, you remember in Hebrews chapter 12, when the writer talks about Jesus enduring the cross, and the Bible says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of God. How could Jesus look at the cross with the mindset of joy? I think because he understood what would be accomplished at the cross. Matter of fact, listen to what Isaiah said in connection with this. In verse 11 he said, He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Man sinned. Sin separates us from God. Matter of fact, Ezekiel said, The soul that sins, it shall surely die. And yet God was willing to give His Son as a sinless sacrifice for our sins. So when Jesus died on Calvary, as Paul said in Romans chapter 3, God could be both just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. In other words, the death of Jesus satisfied the scales of justice from God's perspective. Now listen, when you read Isaiah chapter 53, when I read Isaiah 53, I need to understand that I am included in this prophecy. That God had me in mind just as much as He had you in mind. That when Jesus died on Calvary, Again, think about Isaiah. He said, you shall make his soul an offering for sin. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, to put him to death. And yet, from our vantage point, hard for us to fathom, to understand that God willingly, judicially gave his son to meet the scales of justice. In verse 11, again he said, He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many. But I want to back up and look at verse 10 again very quickly. Look at what he says here. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. When he talks about seeing his seed, what's he talking about here? I think he's going all the way back to chapter 3, verse 15 with the announcement of the promised seed. In chapter 12, you have the calling of Abraham who became the father of the Hebrew nation. And it would be through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the Christ would come. Specifically through the tribe of Judah, the family of David. But those today who obey the gospel of Christ 
we are the beneficiaries of that promise made in Genesis 3 as well as chapter 12. What was it then that God said to Abraham, you remember? In you shall all families of the earth be blessed. When was that realized or fulfilled? It was realized in Christ. And so in Galatians chapter 3, Paul could say, look, you're all sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so it's in that context that he would say, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ. And if you're Christ, listen to him, you're Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. You mean to tell me that when we obey the gospel, when we're baptized into Christ, and we rise to walk in newness of life, that we become the heirs of that promise made? 4,000 years ago, that's exactly right. Isaiah here is saying on behalf of God, He shall see His seed. We are among that seed line, aren't we? Now, not physically speaking, but we are the spiritual descendants, descendants of Abraham. We are the beneficiaries of that. So he said, He shall see His seed, He shall prolong His days. When Jesus died on Calvary, what happened to the apostles? Did they not, in their heart of hearts, think that all was lost? That their cause was dead? And yet, 50 days later, what happened? You know, after Jesus was put to death on Friday, early Sunday morning, He came forth from the grave, didn't He? Declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So here's Jesus resurrected from the grave. And now, 50 days later, what happens? Well, in the minds of many, those who were followers of the way, that movement was dead. And yet Pentecost occurs, the gospel is preached, some 3,000 people obey the gospel on that day, didn't they? And the Bible says the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. And so for a movement that may have appeared dead in, the, dead in its tracks, this movement was just getting started. And so we see something about the posterity of that seed promise and the effects of Jesus being raised from the dead. And by the way, when Jesus died on Calvary, not only did He pay the price for our sins, but He purchased the church with His own blood. That church began on Pentecost Day. God can look at the church today as that immovable kingdom. And we're a part of that. We're blessed in many respects. Now, very quickly, note if you would in verse 12. The prophet said, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made, intercessor, made intercession for the transgressors. 
Now we are introduced to the priestly work of the Christ. You know, in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul, in a very vivid way, articulates God's redemptive plan. In verse 34, he talks about how Christ died, but was raised. And he said, he's now even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Remember what the Hebrew writer said? And when you look at the book of Hebrews, what do you see? There is, there is a strong contrast between the inferiority of the Mosaic dispensation and the Christian dispensation. And so the Christian dispensation, far superior in every way, one of the ways that the Christian dispensation is superior is in the priesthood. And so in Hebrews chapter 7, the writer said he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God by him, listen to him, seeing he ever lives to do what? To make intercession for them. The Lord Jesus is our great high priest today, isn't he? And so the benefits and the blessings of being a child of God. Matter of fact, Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he is our mediator. And there's just one mediator between God and men. He said, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself so that he might redeem us from all sin. That's the Christ we're talking about. And so Jesus Christ today, seated at the right hand of Almighty God, as he sits at the right hand of God, he welds all authority and he functions on our behalf. He is our intercessor. He is our advocate. He is our mediator. And we have assurance tonight. We have assurance that as people who belong to Him, better days are ahead, aren't they? When you read about the death of Christ and understand that God raised Him from the dead, and then put that with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul said that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have died, there's a greater harvest to come. So tonight, the suffering servant, Listen, there is so much in this chapter. And what's really amazing is to think that Isaiah wrote using the past tense. Well, somebody might ask the question, how, how could that be? Jesus hadn't died. How could he write using past tense language? I think the answer lies in the fact that God was that certain that Jesus would fulfill his will on Calvary. And so in John chapter 17, that intercessory prayer on behalf of those who would believe on Him, do you remember He said, I've glorified you on the earth, I've finished the work which you've given me to do. This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Eternal life is only in one place, that's in Christ. Jesus is the hope of a lost and dying world. And Isaiah is telling us the Christ is coming and the New Testament affirms the Christ has come. Not only has He come, but He will come again. And so tonight, if you're here and you're not a Christian, could I encourage you to come to Christ to understand that Jesus died for you. 
He paid the ultimate price for your sins, didn't he? Mentioned a moment ago the vicarious suffering and death of Jesus. Peter said he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And Paul would affirm in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, him who knew no sin, he became sin on our behalf. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. God died. God's son died for you, died for me. The beauty of Christianity is that message, that system of salvation is open to all. Listen to Jesus. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. If you haven't responded to the invitation and you haven't become a child of God, could I encourage you tonight, put your faith and trust in Jesus as the Son of God. Believe what was said about Him in the record. Don't be like the unbelieving Jews. They had every opportunity to embrace the Christ, and they rejected Him. Many of them did. Some today reject the Christ. From where I sit, if you will just sit down, objectively read the Scriptures. Sift through them. Draw your conclusions. Conclusion number one, God loves you. Conclusion number two, God sent His Son to die for your sins. Conclusion number three, Jesus saves. Conclusion number four, if you obey the gospel, all of your sins are washed away. And you can live in hope of life eternal, which God who cannot lie promised before the world began. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful to His cause, listen, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you tonight as we stand and sing.